It's just to remind us of, of what we're doing. We're at the end of Second Peter, uh, and Second Peter tells us uh, in Second Peter three eighteen. Uh, he tells us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so we've, we've had this leaping off point that, that Peter has given us. And just to remind, I mean, these are the, the last sort of written words of Peter. I mean, it's summing up Peter, right? Uh, and here we get this statement to give glory to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus, who is glorious as what? As Lord as Savior and as the Christ. And so that's what we've been doing. Peter tells us to give glory to Jesus. We want to do that. But we also know we can't just make up our own glory, that the scripture is filled with the reasons that Jesus is glorious. We want our understanding of who Jesus is, our praise of who Jesus is, to be matched with what scripture tells us is so great about Jesus. Because there are a lot of people out there who will tell you Jesus is great, but their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus they've just made up. He's a pretty great guy, but he's not real. Uh, we want to make sure that we're giving glory to Jesus the way the Bible tells us to do so. And so Peter gives us three things, uh, Lord, Savior, Christ, three titles that carry with them great. Each of those titles alone would be some, we say, you saying, yeah, we know each of those alone would work because each of them has taken you like four or five weeks. Uh, but each one of those alone would be enough to give great glory to Jesus, to, to really fill our lips, our minds, our hearts with, with, with just ri- a rich resource of why Jesus is so wonderful. Well, now, after we've looked at Lord, and now we finished looking at Savior last week. Now we're going to look at uh, Jesus as the Christ. We're going to give glory to Jesus as, as the Christ. You know, we're, we're going to sort of address what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What is that? Uh, what does it mean when it says Jesus Christ? Well, what are we supposed to be thinking? And why is it glorious that he is the Christ? What's so great about Jesus being the Christ. Uh, and so as we, as we do that, uh, a, an important place to start is Peter's own words on this in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, uh, you can jump down to verse 13. Uh, let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. And of course, we know that our physical standing means nothing if our hearts are not bowing in reverence, standing in awe recognizing this is the words of our God uh, and all that that requires of us. So let's see what Peter tells us before about what he means when he says that Jesus is uh, the Christ. Uh, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, and others, uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and you have instructed us in your word to give glory to Jesus, your son. And one of the reasons we are to give glory to him, Father, is because he is the Christ. Uh, So, Father, I pray that today as we look through your word and let you explain to us what it means that he is the Christ, that we would be captivated, that we would grow in our knowledge, but also grow uh, in in our love for uh, Jesus and uh, in our praise and glory that we give to him, knowing that he is the Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, here we've got this really, this is really an important section here. Uh, in Matthew uh, 16, it's at the, uh, this, this proclamation of who Jesus is. Uh, and really, Peter's words right there in the middle of it, down in verse 16, are the center, sort of the culmination of the question, who is Jesus? Right? Who is he? Who do you say that I got all these people talking about who the Son of Man is? One of Jesus' favorite uh, descriptions of himself. Who do you say that I am? And Peter... Stands up. And when you first read that, you're probably like, well, this isn't going to go well. 
Uh, Peter's like, I'm going to speak. You know, was there ever a moment where Peter was like, I'm not speaking up this time. Uh, this time, I'm, like, like the guy who gets it wrong one time in class and then never answers again for the rest of their high school career. Like, that's not Peter. Peter's like, one more time, Jesus. Uh, he was like the Hermione of the group, but in a bad way. Uh, and so, but he stands up. And what does he say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter stands up, he proclaims, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And this truth, which again was delivered to you, not from yourself, Peter, so don't take any sort of pride in that. You were taught this by my, by my father. He has revealed this to you. But that truth that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus himself says, it is this truth that, that is going, that his kingdom is going to be founded on. And, and, and that this kingdom... This powerful kingdom founded on this truth will be so mighty, so powerful that even the gates of hell will not be able to stop it, will not be able to prevail against it. Now, this is really interesting because Jesus as the Christ is actually probably one of the most well-known titles for Jesus. In a lot of ways, if we said Jesus Christ, people, people would assume that, uh, that we were talking about the Jesus of the Bible. It's the most, one of the most common ways to refer to Jesus is to say Jesus Christ. But oddly, even though it's one of the most popular ways to talk about Christ, even when you use it irreverently, it is really misunderstood by a lot of people. People don't know what does it mean when we say, now the Jesus part they get, but what is the Christ part? I mean, some people think it's his last name. Right? That was Jesus Christ, Mr. Christ, uh, if you didn't know him. Uh, that they, they think it's some sort of name or they might understand that it's a title. They might say, oh, that means he's the Christ. But if you were to ask people, all right, well, what does it mean that he's the Christ? Well, a lot of people would just go, uh, I don't know. Uh, but it, I mean, I know that I know that he is that. Uh, sometimes we might conflate it with, with maybe just the word Savior. So we might say, oh, Christ just means Savior. As if the two were just the same thing. So here Peter uh, is, is teaching us that Jesus is the Christ, but we want to make sure that we understand what it means that he is the Christ. I mean, think about it. it it's funny that we don't know what the, the word Christ means if I were to ask you or many of us, you know, what does Christ mean? No, no. It's funny because what do we call ourselves? What are we called? Christians, right? We're Christians. I mean, it's got the word Christ in it. Uh, and so we call ourselves Christians, but we don't know uh, what the name Christ means, what that title means. Uh, and yet here, Christ is a name that Peter expects us to know when, when Peter lays it down in Matthew 16, he doesn't say, I think you're the Christ. And then Matthew doesn't come in and say, now, for those of you first reading this, let me explain to you what the Christ is. I mean, this is a title. This is supposed to be a boom moment, right? This is supposed to be a moment in the gospel. Where it's like, whoa, Jesus is the Christ. This is something that's supposed to be glorious about him. So we want to make sure that we know what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is the Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. If the, if the Bible tells us that Jesus being the Christ is a glorious thing, if God thought it was a, a glorious enough label to have his children be called Christians, then we're going to find out what Christ means and we're going to find out what makes Jesus so glorious as the Christ. And so the first thing we're going to do is see that there is a very tight relationship between Jesus and the Christ. The Bible is going to tell us that the two are, are one, that there's going to be no other Christ but Jesus. That if we're going to talk about Christ or what it means that someone is the Christ, that that is going to match up one to one uh, with Jesus. If you're going to understand who Jesus is, you've got to understand what it means that he is the Christ. You cannot understand who Jesus is without understanding what the Christ is. So the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus equals Christ. Jesus equals Christ. Uh, you think about it, Jesus is given a lot of names in the New Testament. I mean, he is, uh, he's the word, the, he, is, he is the lamb, 
he is the light. He is the, the son of God. He's our savior. He's Lord. I mean, some of the ones that we've just, just looked at. Each of those in the Bible is important. Each of those is important for understanding who Christ is because they tell us something both about him and about what he's going to do. And although all of those names are important and names that you should know, there's one name that stands above all the others in terms of sheer volume of times that it is attached to Jesus. For example, Jesus is called Savior about 24 times in the New Testament. He's called Savior. Pretty important title, right? Who is Jesus? He's my Savior. I mean, certainly right. I mean, he's called Lord multiple times more than that. Jesus called Lord about 250 times. In the New Testament, he's referred to as Lord or the Lord. Jesus is called Christ 525 times in the New Testament. 525 times the the name, the title Christ is attached to Jesus. So if you're going to understand Jesus, it would be important of all the titles that the Lord gives him over and over and that he has these authors write down and attached to who is Jesus, who is Jesus over and over and over. And I could say over and over 500 times, right? He says, put Christ. This is Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ. This is the Christ. Over and over and over. So if God repeats it 500 times in the New Testament, probably be something we should go, I should probably figure out what that word means, right? I should probably try to understand that word. I can't just keep skipping it and going, well, I assume it it means something very important. Uh, In fact, when you're just looking at the Gospels in general, not just just the number of times that the the word Christ is used, just in terms of the, the Gospel in general, three of the four Gospels, The very first time Jesus is mentioned, the first time you meet him in these stories of his life and his work, he is called not just Jesus, but called Jesus Christ. Before these people who are reading these gospel accounts ever even know him, they make it very clear, we're going to tell you not just about a man named Jesus, we're going to tell you about Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew and Mark, it's in the very first verses. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, it's the book of the genealogy, not just of Jesus, but of whom? Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark chapter 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. So so Matthew and Mark start right off the bat, letting you know that the guy whose life you're about to read isn't just some dude named Jesus. This is the story of Jesus the Christ. It's not like it takes John. So John's not in the first verse. You know, John's a slacker. But it's not like it takes John long to get to it. In, In John chapter one, if you go down to verse 17, I mean, it's just in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ. In in many ways, when you read it, John's is actually even more striking to say Jesus Christ, because remember, John is building off of that great opening, that great Johannine prologue where you've got the word, the word who is God, the word who was God is this word who made everything, who has, who is life and light, this, this word who makes us children of God, this word who becomes flesh and, and dwells among us and shows us his glory well then john is like who is that word who does all of these things who could be that glorious verse 17 is right at the end of that and says i'll tell you who that is the big reveal is not just jesus is that but jesus christ is that man the same is true in the in the other letters of the new testament In every letter of the New Testament, except Acts and and Hebrews, the first time Jesus is mentioned, the first time Jesus' name appears in those letters, Jesus is introduced to the readers, not as simply Jesus, but as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. That means 23 out of the 27 New Testament letters start out with not let's talk about Jesus, but let's talk about life in Jesus the Christ. Let's talk about Christ Jesus. In fact, the the title Christ becomes so associated to Jesus, so tied to him and him alone, 
that it almost takes on the form of almost a name or to say Christ is to speak of Jesus or to say Jesus is to speak of of the Christ. So, for example, you get to Romans chapter six, verse eight, and it says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So by the time you you get here, Paul's writing and he doesn't have to clarify us to who is the Christ to say the Christ, the people know what he's talking about Jesus here. So so that's the first thing is that it's important for us to understand if, if we are going to know who Jesus is, we have to know who the Christ is and what it means that he's the Christ because the Bible talks about it a lot. The Bible talks about it thematically in important places. All of the reasons for us to look at it and say, I've got to know if I love Jesus, I've got to know what it means that he is the Christ because that's apparently a pretty big thing in, in the Bible. Uh, so it's absolutely essential for us to understand that uh, and if it's absolutely essential that we understand who Christ is, if the, if the Bible is shouting that fact, uh, then we've got to answer the question, what does it mean when it says that he is the Christ? Okay, so the Bible's told us Jesus is the Christ. Now we're going to see what does it mean that he is the Christ. And, and let's begin just by looking at the word itself. What does the word Christ itself even mean? Because that's going to help us understand uh, maybe what the Bible is trying to teach us about what Jesus is doing. Uh, and, and so a simple way to understand this is Christ equals Messiah equals anointed one. So if you're filling out your notes and you want to get an A, uh, that would be the two blanks there. Christ equals Messiah equals anointed one. And so if you're just looking at the word uh, Christ, the word Christ is a Greek word. You all know Greek now, right? You know Greek. You're now Greek. Uh, you know, uh, you can you can just read the but We'll just read the Bible in Greek from now on because we know one word. Uh, is the word Christ. We don't translate that word. It's just the Greek word Christos. And so instead of translating it, we just keep it, you know, Christ. But that Greek word is itself just the Greek version of of an important Hebrew word that you're probably familiar with. And that's the word Messiah. You ever heard the word Messiah? That's another Hebrew word. We don't translate. Uh, We transliterate. We just take the Hebrew letters and turn them into an English word. uh, But both of those words, both Christ and Messiah, they both mean simply anointed one. A person who has been anointed. Now, what would happen is you would have someone who was anointed with oil and 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 that was used to sort of represent that someone had been appointed by God to an office or a duty or or a function. The, the oil would be, they'd take oil and they would pour it or they would smear it on the person's head as a picture of how God had poured his spirit on that person to achieve the task that God had decided for them to do, that God had appointed them to do. Such a person was an anointed one. They had been messiahed. They had been Christed. That's the idea. So when we read Jesus Christ, we can all think in our heads that we're reading, if we were to translate that word Christ, that we're reading Jesus, the anointed one. And so, well, what does that mean that he's the anointed one? Where does the Bible talk about people being anointed or people uh, uh, being anointed by God? As you go through the Old Testament, there are actually a lot of people anointed by God, a lot of messiahs. A a lot of little Christs, people who have been appointed by God for particular tasks or positions who are anointed by God, who are messiahed by God, who are Christed by God to achieve that task. So we'll look at three specific roles. And as we start to look at these roles, you're probably going to say, hey, I think I know where this is going. One role, surprise, surprise, that was an anointed role in the Old Testament was the role of prophet. Prophets were anointed by God. They were anointed by God and then anointed by the people recognizing that they are speaking as the voice of God. For example, uh, Elijah and Elisha. Remember that name for next week that's going to be 
a really great wordplay going on uh, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, really in Jesus' baptism just in general. Anyway, uh, 1 Kings 19. Look at what happens and the anointing of, of prophets. Uh, 1 Kings 19, 15 through 19. And the Lord said to him, Go, return, to you, uh, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, this is Elijah, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, uh, and he was with uh, the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So here we see uh, Elijah is told, hey, there's your, your life as prophet is about to end. Your time as prophet is going to end eventually. I want you to anoint a successor who is going to serve as a prophetic voice. And he tells him, I want you to go because Elijah doesn't just pick. God says, I'll tell you whom I have poured my spirit on. And now you go and anoint that person, recognizing what I've told you that I've already set him aside to do. I have already messiahed him. I've already Christed him. I've already anointed him. Now you go and do a physical anointing as a symbol of what I've already done. And so he goes and he anoints uh, Elisha. But it's not just prophets. Guess who else are anointed in the Old Testament? Prophets and, anybody got a guess? Huh? That's just a bunch of mumbling. Priests, that's right. The three-year-old got it. Way to go, Jack. It's an, it's an advanced catechism class that we're doing at our house. Uh, priests. So prophets were anointed. Priests are supposed to be anointed. The priests were anointed to show that God had set them apart to a particular work. Now, what work had the priests been set apart to do? The priests had been set apart to sort of reconcile the people to God through the working of sacrifices to be a picture of what God was going to do through Christ. So, for example, Exodus 28. Exodus 28, 40 to 41. For Aaron's son, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve as priests. So since these priests had been appointed by God for this task, remember God says, not just go and pick priests, but from this line, these people, this is whom I have chosen to do this job. You then anoint them, recognizing that I have already anointed them with my spirit to do this task. So again, just an outward symbol of what God has already done on the inside. So you've got prophets, you've got priests. I know you're all going to get this last one. Who is the last group of people that was also anointed in the Old Testament, not Jack. Okay, Jack. Uh, kings, that's right. Jack, I think Boogie beat you, Jack, just a little bit. Was it Levi? Levi, you get the point. Sorry, Boogie, gotta be faster. Uh, kings, kings. So you've got prophets, you've got priests, you've got kings. And I'm sure you're like, I feel like I've heard this attached to a person before. Uh, and kings, kings were also anointed to show what? That they had been chosen by God to lead the people. So you get to the first king. I mean, you're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. This is Saul. Not exactly the worst guy, but not the best guy either. Uh, it says, now the day before uh, Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'll send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you he it is who will restrain my people. So Saul, first king, Israel, anointed. Guess what happens when the next king comes? David. Guess what happens to David? Anointed. So you look in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. 
Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So you've got prophets, you've got priests, you've got kings, all anointed, saying God has given them a particular task and we are recognizing that. The anointing here, the people, the the elders are not giving David some sort of special power here when they do this. They are not giving David some sort of special task. They are recognizing what God has already chosen to do through David, that this is the one sent by God to achieve this mission. You've got prophets, you've got priests, you've got kings. Now, again, all over the Old Testament, in fact, the Bible tells us that the whole nation of Israel was a nation of anointed ones, was a nation of messiahs, so to speak. For example, Psalm 105, verse 15. This is in the Psalm, uh, God is talking about how he has protected Israel from their enemies to make sure that they're not destroyed uh, and how he's even repaid them uh, when, they, when they did do damage to Israel. And Psalm 105, 15, talking about Israel, he says, touch not my anointed ones. Touch not my messiahs. Touch not my Christ's, my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So we see prophets, priests, kings, even the entire nation of Israel spoken of as anointed ones, as though chosen by God for their particular task. Again, this outward anointing is just a symbol of what God has already done on the inside. So, so when you're going through the Old Testament, there are many messiahs, many Christ, many, many anointed ones, but the, but the primary anointed positions, ones that always require an actual physical anointing, uh, are prophets, priests, and kings. So the Bible tells us there's actually a lot of messiahs, a lot of, if you think about it, little m messiahs, little c Christ throughout scripture. There's a whole nation of them. But there was also in the Old Testament this expectation, not just of another Messiah, but that these little Messiahs were all waiting for the ultimate Messiah to come. For the one who'd been anointed by God, not just to be a shadow of doing these things, but would be God himself doing these things. So not just a person representing, say, for example, God's rule over the people, not just a person representing uh, God's reconciliation of the people, not just a person representing God speaking to the people, but as Isaiah chapter 40 says, God, be, behold your God and God actually coming and doing these things for the people. So there's this expectation, not just of a Messiah, but of the Messiah to come. So the Bible tells us that eventually there was this hope, not just of another Messiah, not just of another, we need another Messiah or another group. We just need another nation of Messiahs. We need another nation of anointed ones. We need the Messiah to come. In fact, all those Messiahs were just shadows of what God was promising to do and do all of those things in one person. Do all of those things, prophet, priest, king, the uh, uh, people of God, all of them in one person. That hope is fulfilled in Jesus. So the last thing we're going to see is Jesus equals the Christ. So the Bible tells us that Jesus is Christ. Now, as you're reading that in your Bibles, you go, well, that means someone who's anointed by God, who's been given a purpose by God to achieve a particular task. These tasks were were shadows of the one who was to come who is the one sent by God to do all of these things and not just be the shadow of them but to be the reality to be the one who actually leads to people the one who actually reconciles them to God the one who speaks the word of God who didn't just speak it but who is the word of God the perfect prophet the perfect priest the perfect king Jesus is the Christ the anointed one the Messiah. 
So when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is the one that comes as the ultimate fulfillment of all of this Old Testament sort of hope. And again, not just a Messiah, but the Messiah. Not just a Christ, but the Christ. Now, there are people out there who would try and say that the Jews weren't waiting on a Messiah. There will be people out there who will try and say, well, they didn't, there was no expectation of a Messiah. Now, this is in many ways, uh, ultimately, I think, just an intentional misreading of the Old Testament. It began by, by Jews who, guess what, just didn't want to believe in Jesus. So if you don't, well, if you don't want to believe that Jesus is fulfilling all of these promises about a Messiah, what do you just say? Well, I don't think we're even waiting on a Messiah. Uh, then, then, you, then you sort of try and step yourself out of the equation. Uh, but the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, when you read the New Testament, it shows us that the Jewish people as, as, a, as a nation are not surprised by the coming of Christ, but that they were waiting for this coming of Christ. They were waiting for a Messiah. And, and, it, and what, what's funny is if, is if that weren't true, then when the Gospels talk about these people waiting on a Messiah, the Jews in the first, second, third century could have just said, that's not true. We're not waiting on a Messiah. So these Gospels written and saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of us waiting for a Messiah. If the Jews weren't waiting on a Messiah, I mean, talk about easy anti-apologetics in the first century. They'd have just gone, hey, are you waiting on a Messiah? No, what's a Messiah? Uh, you, I mean, it would have been easy, but they're able to pull out what, what we know to be true. There was an expectation of a Christ to come, of one who would come and redeem God's people, who would reconcile them to God, who would lead them, who would be the word of God to them. And that is Christ. You, let's look at this expectation because what we're going to see that is so glorious about Christ is you have all these people waiting on a fulfillment and Jesus is the one who fulfills those promises. So take, for example, you can go through the whole life of Jesus. You can begin at his birth. Uh, the Gospel of Luke. So I didn't mention, remember, I didn't say, Luke was one of the ones that doesn't mention Jesus as the Christ right off the bat, right? It doesn't, and when it talks about Jesus, it doesn't begin by saying Jesus Christ. It just talks about Jesus. But what's, what's interesting is although Luke is the only gospel, that doesn't mention or introduce us to Jesus as the Christ, it doesn't mean that in Luke, Jesus as the Christ is not important. In fact, you could actually make an argument that although Luke doesn't introduce us to Jesus as the Christ, that Luke places the most focus on Jesus as the expected Messiah and the expected Christ. I mean, go, go to his birth, this great story. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, going through verse 32, we've got this great story of Simeon, right? Uh, and, and what does Simeon say? Now, there was uh, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And he came in the spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for or to your people Israel. Well, what do we see here? We see that Simeon is waiting for the Christ and that Simeon's not some wacko waiting for the Christ. Simeon is a righteous and devout man waiting for the Christ to come. Now, what's interesting is Simeon is himself a little C Christ. Simeon has been anointed here. It says the Holy Spirit is upon him. The Holy Spirit is one who even told him uh, that he would not see death until he'd seen the Christ. That same Holy Spirit then guides him to the temple to see Jesus and to see God fulfill his promise. Well, what do we see from this? Not only do we see that people were waiting for the Christ, we also see what they thought the Christ would do. What did, what did Simeon think the Christ was going to do? He says that what? That the Christ would be salvation. Salvation, but not just for the Jews. That he would be a revelation to the Gentiles. That he would bring glory to God's people. 
We actually see the same thing in the very next verses in the prophetess, Anna, another anointed one. And what does she say? You've got, you've got these anointed ones saying, look, this is the anointed one. So you've got this prophet in, in Luke chapter 2, 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 48. She didn't depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for what? For the redemption of Israel. Anna sees Jesus as the redemption of Jerusalem, as the redemption of God's people. So again, it's interesting. You've got these anointed ones rejoicing in the anointed one. You've got these people who were, wow, these are, you know, these are the, the Lord's anointed here. The Lord has anointed them. He's he put his spirit upon them. They're doing these great things and, and they are rejoicing in the one who is to come. This is, and, and again, this is why when some people say that the early Jews just expected the Messiah to be only political. And I said, well, that might be true, but only because those Jews hadn't been reading their Bibles. Because here, when you have devout Jews, when you have godly Jews, they're very much waiting for a Christ who would do far more than just throw off Roman oppression. Like, Simeon doesn't go, finally, let's go find Pilate. Uh, you know, he's not like, hey, uh, and Anna's not like, let me get, let me get my swords out. Uh, I mean, there's an expectation here of the Messiah who would bring for the people, not just an earthly salvation, but an ultimate uh, and full salvation. Uh, And this continues throughout Jesus' life, even as Jesus begins his ministry. Uh, Take, for example, John chapter 1, which might be the best place. So Jesus' birth, they say, look, this is the Christ. Jesus begins his ministry. The first thing we're going to see is this is the Christ. That the people who first meet Jesus are excited. Why? Because this is the Christ that we've been waiting on. This is him. This is the one. So John chapter 1, I I love this because Peter's going to be involved in this as well. John chapter 1, 35 through 46 says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus, right? If you're following John and then you see the Lamb of God, you leave him to follow the Lamb of God. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and Nathanael said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So here we see that there was this expectation among the people for the coming of Christ. You look at these verses, Andrew runs and he tells Peter, we have found the Messiah. And then, and then John lets us know that means Christ, if you, if you don't speak Hebrew. Uh, this means the Christ. We found the anointed one. And Peter doesn't say to him, what do you mean? Well, what are you talking about? What's a Christ? What's the Christ? What, are you, what have we been waiting for? And John doesn't explain to his readers either. He doesn't say, well, see, there were some Jews who were waiting on a Messiah. There were certain sects of the Jews who were waiting for, you know, a Christ. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, let me explain what they're talking about. John expects the readers to know exactly what Andrew and Peter are talking about. John expects them to know exactly what the Jews were waiting for, that the Jews were waiting on the Christ who had been written about throughout the Old Testament, waiting so much that there was excitement 
that all Andrew needed was one selling point. This is the Christ. This is God's anointed one. The Bible tells us even non-Jews, even not even the most non-Jew, well, kind of the most non-Jew, even non-Jews like the Samaritans knew about the Messiah and knew the expectation for this coming Messiah. You get the story of the woman at the well, which really should be the story of the Samaritan woman at the well to give it a little bit more punch. But what does John tell us in John chapter 4? The woman said to him, what does this Samaritan woman know? The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am am he. Now, Now, this is important, one, because she's not a Jew. And yet she knows that the Messiah is coming. So here you've got, of course, we'd had Simeon, we'd had Anna, we had these very devout Jews who knew about the expectation of the Christ, who knew that God's people were waiting for God's anointed one to come and rescue us. But even non-Jews, even Samaritans knew, hey, yeah, I know the Messiah is going to come. This is also interesting because Samaritans only read the first five books of the Bible, and yet she was able to get this understanding from the first five books of the Bible that a Messiah was going to come. Let that remind you when someone says, you know, I don't know if the Old Testament talks about the Messiah. If you could, you just read the first five books of the Bible and get enough to know, even a Samaritan woman stuck at a well because of the choices that you've made, uh, that the Messiah is going to come. So plenty in Scripture, uh, even if you're a Samaritan woman, which none of you are, so you're already going to up. Uh, so G- the Jews were waiting on the Messiah and everybody knew it. In fact, Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, is so central to the Christian message, especially to Jews, that early Christian evangelism focused on Jesus as the long-awaited Christ. So that when they were getting people to repent and believe, they said, look, you need to believe in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Take, for example, Acts chapter 2. Here again, we've tried to keep it Petrine here. Uh, Here again, Acts chapter 2, we get Peter. And what happens? This famous passage. And what does he say? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. So Peter comes and he says, look, guys, I got bad news for you. This Jesus is the Christ, and you killed him. And the Jews don't say, what are you talking about? They don't say, what do you mean the Christ? In fact, they understand the implication of what he says, and they're so worried that they're like, wait, we killed the anointed one? Remember in the Old Testament, you're not even supposed to touch the Lord's anointed, right? You, you, even if you cut a little piece of cloth off the edge of his robe, you're like, I shouldn't have done that. I apologize. Uh, You're not even supposed to touch him. And they just killed him. And not just killed a Messiah, not even killed a, a lowercase anointed one. They killed the Christ. And so if they killed the, the Christ, they're not like, well, we killed him. What are we supposed to do? We just, it, it's like, it would be, I mean, it's like, here's the answer. And you killed the answer, right? And what does, what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, the Christ. So yeah, you killed the Christ. What can I do? We killed the answer. We killed the thing that we were hoping for. And and Peter says, repent and be baptized in his name. And let the blood that you caused to flow, flow over you. And find the forgiveness, even for your sins, even when your sin is what? Crucifying the Lord's anointed. I mean, this whole exchange, Peter's choice of sermons, the Jews' response, it all only makes sense if the people know what the Christ is. God has made him Lord and Christ, and you crucified him. If, If they know who the Christ is and they know the expectation of what the Christ was to come and do, 
In fact, we see this not just in a sermon. We see that an entire book, an entire gospel revolves around this idea of showing the people Jesus is that long-awaited Christ. This is what John tells us his whole book has been about. So you get to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of this gospel, the whole purpose of the gospel of John is to show people that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that, they would have life in his name. Just as those who crucified him can find life when they repent and believe in his name or baptize in his name. In the same way, you find life when you believe in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. It would make any sense for the early Christian message to be about Jesus fulfilling a promise that no one was waiting on. The early church spoke to a Jewish people who through the Old Testament was waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the Christ to come. Now, maybe some of them thought it would just be another Messiah like the ones before. The early church comes and says that this Jesus isn't just another Messiah. This isn't just another Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And so when we are going to look at what is so glorious about Jesus being the Christ, the first thing that we can see is that Jesus is this fulfillment of all that the people of God were waiting for all that they'd been waiting on, everything that was captured in the, these uh, significant roles in the life of Israel, like prophets and priests and kings, they were all just shadows leading us to Christ, leading us to the Christ, Jesus, who's the fulfillment of all that God said, all of the promises of God, finding their fulfillment in him. He, Jesus, was appointed by God to come and save his people who would do as Simeon said and would bring salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the world who would bring glory and redemption to his people. I, I think Paul captured it best in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. What does Paul say? All the promises of God find their yes in him, which is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. What's so glorious about Jesus? When, when we see Jesus as the Christ, we see a God who keeps all of his promises. Who kept all of his promises to his people in the past and will keep all of the promises that he has made to us. And we see all of those promises in the light of the glorious Jesus who is the Christ. So when we think of bringing glory to Jesus as the Christ, what can we think? One, recognize Jesus is the one anointed by God, sent by God to achieve the task of bringing our salvation. And because of that, you and I can do what Paul says we should do. We can look to Christ and we can say amen to God. Because we know that God who keeps his promises then will keep his promises now. How can we know that? How can we know that we can be saved? How can we know that we can be reconciled to God? How can we know that we can trust the word of God? How do we know that God will lead us, reign over us, guide us and be our king? Look to Christ. Because he is all of those things. He is the one God promised from the beginning. And the one that we wait for at the end. Jesus is the Christ. And because he's the Christ, we can know that everything is going to be okay because our Jesus is glorious. Let's pray. And just take a moment and with our heads bowed, just to be thinking about what is so glorious about Jesus. He is the Christ. I mean, it's a, it's a word we've probably used a lot, a, a word we talk about, but think about all, all of the things that you needed, all of the reasons you had to have no hope in this world. And yet, God has spoken, God has reconciled, and God is leading you. All through whom? 
through Christ, through Jesus, the one anointed by God to bring redemption to you. Think how hopeless your life would be if Jesus wasn't the anointed one, if Jesus wasn't the one sent by God to come and do this, to save you, to redeem you, to bring you glory that you certainly didn't deserve, to be a child of the king that you killed, to say that in my sin, I am just as guilty of crucifying the Lord as those Jews who did it sitting at the foot of the cross. So what hope can I have? Chris, I've done this and I've done that and I've done this. Your hope is the same as theirs. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus the Christ. Repent and be baptized. Be washed in him for the forgiveness of your sins. What's so great about Jesus as the Christ? Jesus as the Christ means that Jesus is our hope. It means that we don't wait on shadows. We sit in light of the real thing. Our salvation has come. The promises of God have come. And we are living no longer in the dark, but in the light of Christ. The light of our Christ, our Messiah, our anointed one, Jesus. May we remember that. May we glorify God for who Jesus is. And may we rest, rest in the promises of God. That are fulfilled in his Christ. Father, we come to you today, God, because there would be, I mean, Father, we are living in a post-Christ situation. Uh, All that Simeon said would happen when the Messiah came, I mean, we're living in that. The, the, The light of revelation to the Gentiles, I mean, we are living in that light. We are sitting here across the globe from Jerusalem and yet the light of that great Messiah, the light of that Christ is revealing hope even to us who would have had no part in the people of Israel on our own, who would have done everything and had done by by blood and by choice to separate us from your people and from you. And yet in your Christ, you come and you bring redemption. You bring all of these great things that the Old Testament was showing us and all these shadows, they're all culminated in Jesus. And so we are Christians. We are rejoicing in in our Savior who has come. We are rejoicing in our Messiah. We're rejoicing in our Lord. We're rejoicing in the one anointed by you sent by you to bring redemption, salvation, reconciliation, eternal life, all through him and him alone. And so, Father, we bear that name Christian with joy because we know in the Christ we have our hope and not just our hope, but the fulfillment of our hope as well. And so, Father, help us to glory in Jesus even more as we recognize what is so great about him being the Christ, the Messiah, your anointed one. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.